Jason and the worship team, thank you so much for a, a great, great launch into the fall. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So said A.W. Tozer way back in 1961. Well, today we kick off a new series. And uh, for those of you wondering what in the world happened, we made it halfway through the Gospel of John. And we will return to John's Gospel But not until we immerse ourselves, saturate ourselves in a biblical study on the nature of God. We have entitled this study, God of Wonders. And I am convinced that large numbers of Christians, even evangelical Christians, are neglecting the biblical doctrine of God. I'm convinced that large numbers of Christians are in the habit of creating a God in their own making. Joel Osteen, pastor of one of the largest churches in America, puts it this way, quote, It doesn't matter who likes you or doesn't like you. All that matters is God likes you. He accepts you. He approves of you. Close quote. Before I stepped up to the pulpit this morning... My wife leaned over to me and she saw this book in my hand, The Shack by William Young. And she said, what are you doing with that? (laughs) What emerges in The Shack is an incomplete portrait of God and hence a false portrait of God. I have in my hands a book that was on the New York Times bestseller list for weeks and weeks and weeks. When I read it, when it first came out, I remember looking in the New York Times bestseller list and it was listed as uh, somewhere in in, in the upper echelons of that list. But it, it had sat there for at least 24 weeks. And I began to grow concerned. For in this book, the eminence of God eclipses the transcendence of God. The mercy of God overshadows the majesty of God. The gentleness of God disregards, I would add, utterly disregards the justice of God. And the approach to God in this book is man-centered from the start. The lead character in the book a man by the name of Mac. His initial encounter with God is one where he ponders his options as he considers his face-to-face meeting with God. And the author says, And how should he address him? Should he call him Father or Almighty One or perhaps Mr. God? And would it be best if he fell down and worshipped? Not that he was really in the mood, close quote. Even from the outset in this book, God is humanized, God is trivialized, and this ultimately leads to a a convoluted view of the living God. Now, instead of embracing the biblical portrait of God that we find in the scriptures, sinful people are are in the habit of creating a little G-O-D, a little God in their imaginations. 
A.W. Pink rightly says, how vastly different is the God of Scripture from the God of the average pulpit. Now, the mission of Christ Fellowship is a mission that we are very excited about as a church family. The mission of Christ Fellowship is to help people become fully devoted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we know that a fully devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ knows God. A disciple, a disciple knows God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 17. You say, I thought we're done with John for a season. Well, I want to use John chapter 17 verse 3 as a launching point in our study on the doctrine of God. I would invite you to stand to your feet as we read one verse from John chapter 17, verse 3. Of course, this is the famous high priestly prayer where Jesus Christ prays to his Father. And he says in this prayer, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We pray with me. Father, we uh, are excited about uh, the beginning of fall. We're excited for new ministries that are being launched uh, today and, and later this month. And, and we're so thankful for each uh, person who comes to Christ Fellowship, who has a desire to, to know you, to understand what it means to serve as a disciple. We thank you for the many who have uh, been hard at work to put everything together for uh, this day where we worship you in spirit and in truth. God, as we stand collectively as God's people with the word of God before us, I commit this sermon series to you and ask that we would go deeper into the glories of God. I pray that we would see you as the word of God portrays you, that we would not compromise, that we would not uh, grow accustomed to creating a God in our own image. Rather, we would recognize the biblical God, the God that is painted in sacred scripture. And so we worship you today afresh. We adore you. We love you. Our desire is to submit wholly to you. And so, God, we commit this hour to you and ask that you would be uh, glorified in this place. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. Well, it will be several months, several months before we make it to this chapter in John chapter 17. At that time, we will do a more detailed exposition of this particular text. But the passage before us in verse 3 reveals an absolutely vital principle. There is a principle here that I believe we need to come to terms with, and it is this. I believe that the most important thing in life, the most important thing for any person all around the world is to know God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week, I shared with you that I have been rereading a a classic by J.I. Packer, a book entitled Knowing God. And Dr. Packer rightly says, disregard the study of God. 
And you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through the blindfolded life, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. Packer continues, this way you can waste your life and lose your soul. So I would ask you this morning, does theology matter? I can't tell you how many times over the last 25 years in pastoral ministry I have been told to tone down the theology, to set aside the theology, to cool it on the theology. I have been told by several, I'm not interested in theology. Now remember what theology means. Theology is the study of God. And so it is with great horror when I hear someone say, I'm not interested in theology. Translation, I'm not interested in God. And so we're careful with our words as we approach the living God. The title of the message this morning is A God-Centered View of God. A God-Centered View of God. One writer puts it this way, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most sobering fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but deep in what he is, deep in his heart, conceives God to be like. That is a very practical bit of counsel. And I would ask this morning, and I would challenge you, With this idea, what is your conception of God? We all come to church this morning with a set of of pre-convictions. We come with a set of presuppositions. Some of those presuppositions are good and right and biblical. Some of those presuppositions are found nowhere in the pages of sacred scripture. Perhaps you see God as a heavenly grandfather in the sky. Maybe you see God as a stern taskmaster, a a vindictive God who delights in punishing people. Or you view him through a, a biased set of theological lenses. You may be here this morning and say, I utterly reject the view that God has comprehensive foreknowledge of all things. We live in a season of church history where many pastors and theologians believe just that. They reject the notion that God knows what you will have for lunch tomorrow. Can you believe it? Pastors and theologians, people who are are trained in the scriptures, who should know better, who say God has no idea, young people, who you will marry in the next four or five years. God has no idea of the time of your death. God has no idea what your future career will be. You may reject the idea that God chooses people before the foundation of the world. You may reject the notion of God's triune nature. You may affirm, and I hear this a lot, you may affirm a God of limited sovereignty. You may affirm the notion of a a pantheistic God, a, a God who is in all. I would hasten to add to each of the the pre convictions that I just shared are false notions of God. False notions of God. 
These are portraits of God that are nowhere found in sacred scripture. And so the critical question this morning for each of us is this, as we begin this study on God, is how do you conceive of God? What is it that you cherish deep down in your hearts about God? A.W. Tozer said, so necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. Tozer says the first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. An example of exactly what Tozer pointed to. I read an article on August 6th, just a few weeks ago. And this article describes the reality of what I like to refer to as A.W. Tozer's slippery slope. The title of the article reads, Historic Church, which produced First Southern Baptist Convention president, will allow gay ordination and transgender same-sex marriage. And here are a few lines from that article, and I quote, A new non-discrimination policy at First Baptist Church in Greenville will offer same-sex marriage ceremonies and allow membership, leadership positions, church ordinances, and ordination to openly gay, transgender individuals without telling them their lifestyles contradict biblical teaching. It's going to open up a space for evangelical gay people to have a place again, Pastor Jim Dant said of his church's recent consensus to, quote-unquote, not discriminate based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Jim Dant remarks, A crucial step in the process was assuring church members no one would tell them that their personal convictions were wrong. You see, as members of the body of Christ, we need to be ready to submit to Scripture. That when we engage in activity that is immoral activity, engage in activity that is condemned in sacred Scripture, that we need to be ready to hear your activity, your lifestyle, the way you do things is wrong. The way you do things is evil. The way you do things is condemned by Scripture. You ask when you think about First Baptist Church in Greenville, how in the world did we get to this place? How could such a thing happen? How did the church who helped produce the first president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary come to the point where they affirm gay marriage? How did they reach this point? I'm sure that there were many contributing factors as the elders, as the church leadership came to this conclusion and this new policy. But one thing is for certain. This church compromised their view on God. You see, theology matters. The way that we think about God, you see, influences everything. That's why I am often asked, will the sermon series, will the lesson, will the talk, will it be practical? Will it be relevant? Will it hit me where I live? And I believe, my friends, that all theology is relevant. 
All theology is practical, especially as we talk about the doctrine of God. Why? Because the way that we perceive God influences everything. The way I perceive God to be influences the way I parent my children. My view of God influences the the work ethic I have. My view of God influences how I relate to my spouse. It influences how we spend our money. It influences our views on life and death. It influences how and when and why we worship. In short, the way we view God, it changes everything. It changes everything. Before James Boyce went to be with the Lord, he uttered these words, The goal of theology is the worship of God. The posture of theology is on one's knees. And the mode of theology is repentance. And so three questions by way of introduction will help to to guide the message this morning. I want to give those questions to you in advance to give you a, a context for your thinking. The three, three questions are as follows. Number one, does God exist? Now, for most of you, the answer to that question is easy. You recognize, you affirm God's existence. But I can almost guarantee you that there is someone here, that there are people at Christ Fellowship this morning who are questioning God's existence. And so for them, it is a practical way to begin. Does God exist? Question number two, how, if God exists, how then can we know this God? How can we know him? And question number three is, how then shall we think about God? How should we view God? What do we believe about him? And so look at the first question with me. The most basic, fundamental question anyone could ever ask, does God exist? Well, the first thing we need to acknowledge is this. If, if God does not exist, think about this. Those of you that are logically minded. By the way, who created logic? God did. God is the most logical being in the universe. And so we're careful with statements like, I don't like logic. That's a very nonsensical thing to say. God invented it. And so we begin with this question. Does God exist? If God does not exist... If he does not exist, then people populate this planet by chance. There is no design, no purpose, and no final accountability in life. But, I would add, if he does exist, and as the people of God, we affirm his existence. If God does exist, then a host of other questions surface. Such as, what is he like? We will talk about that. Why did he create the world? What does he expect of us? Shall we worship him? And if so, how shall we worship him? And what if we choose to ignore this God? What if we suppress the truth of his existence? What if we disobey him? And so as we consider at a a very basic level this question of the existence of God, I want to, to direct you in seven general directions. There are really seven basic options, and you have to pick one of them. 
concerning the existence of God. The first is one that you're all familiar with. The first uh, option concerning the existence of God is the opposite of the existence of God. It's atheism. Atheism. Of course, you know, the Greek word theo means God. God. When you put the alpha or the a in front of theism, you negate the theism. So, Atheism means no God. That's the first option. The second option is agnosticism. Agnosticism. I think agnostics are an interesting bunch. They're not as dogmatic as men like Richard Dawkins and the late Chris Hitchens, uh, men like Charles Darwin, people who say, I'm an atheist, I don't believe God exists. The agnostic scratches his or her head and says, I'm not sure whether or not God exists. Ultimate uncertainty about God's existence. Number three, there is a position that was very popular, especially in 18th century England and America, and it is the worldview known as deism. Deism. Now, deism is not atheistic. Deism, if you're a deist, you actually believe in God, but you reject any kind of miracles, uh, divine providence from God, you see, a deist believes that God is the, the watchmaker, the heavenly watchmaker who wound up the universe at the beginning of the story, and then it's a hands-off policy. He just lets the universe go. And so you have some very famous individuals who were deists, men like Thomas Jefferson. It always blows people away when I refer to one of the great figures, uh, an absolutely brilliant man in Thomas Jefferson, but he committed a bit of a blunder when he created the so-called Jefferson Bible. You see, Thomas Jefferson, as a deist, did not believe in, in miracles. He rejected the virgin birth of Christ. He rejected the deity of Christ. That is, he refused to believe that Jesus was and is God in the flesh. And so he took a, an instrument, a razor blade, and he cut out all the passages in the New Testament that had to do with miracles or, or the deity of Christ or the virgin birth of Jesus. It's called the Jefferson Bible. Another deist who was friends and a great admirer of one of my heroes, George Whitfield, was Benjamin Franklin. I like to call Benjamin Franklin a modified deist. He wasn't as radical as Thomas Jefferson, but sure enough, Ben Franklin was a deist. He was a deist. Then there is a fourth worldview known as a polytheism polytheism and of course the prefix before theist poly means many and so a polytheist believes not in one god as we do at christ fellowship a polytheist believes in how many gods many gods multiple gods uh, for instance in the hindu worldview hindus by definition are polytheistic they believe in a, a so-called pantheon of gods thousands and thousands and thousands of little g-o-d-s gods Another worldview that I referred to a moment ago is the, the view known as pantheism. The prefix P-A-N, that's not the thing you put on your stove to cook your uh, top ramen, but P-A-N means all. And so a pantheist believes that all is God and God is all. So a pantheist, by definition, would, would be uh, in this pen. A pantheist, by definition, would be in that Kleenex box. Guess what you just caught? A Kleenex box. A pantheist, by definition, would, would be in the pulpit. A pantheist, by definition, sees God in everything. 
travel down to downtown Bellingham someday and get in some conversations with people, especially in coffee shops, and you will learn that many people in our culture, knowingly and unknowingly, are pantheists. Now, here's an interesting one that you'll have to see on the screen to differentiate number five from number six. It's a version of uh, pantheism, but it's different. It's one that's a little hard to explain. It's the view known as panentheism. I want to do something just for fun. Raise your hand if you've never in your whole life heard of panentheism. Interesting, right? Today, we'll learn just for a moment about panentheism. You remember, pantheism is God is all and all is God. Panentheism means this. You ready? Would you do this and just... Just pretend. The young people always do this with me. Just pretend. Put your seatbelt on. It's a, thank you, Katie. Put your seatbelt on. No one else is really doing it. But uh, put your seatbelt on and and consider panentheism. Panentheism says this. The universe is in God. I'm not getting anything. Does anyone find that a little weird? The universe is in God. There was a book that was released a few months ago by a, a man who pastors a, a church in the city of Minneapolis. The book is entitled Flipped. Flipped. The subtitle is The Provocative Truth That Changes Everything We Know About God. Let me read one line from this book. The author says, God is not a separate, single subject. You have your worldview glasses on this morning. You're, you're discerning as a Christian. He goes on. This pastor says, if God were not a separate being from all things in the cosmos, then we need not simply say God exists. We can say that God is existence. All is in God. We can recognize that all people live, move, and exist in God. And so what this author does is he goes to Acts chapter 17, and he he twists the scripture to promote a panentheistic view of God. And as I read this book, to review this book, I was rather disturbed is a mild word because the word panentheism never occurs in this book. Essentially what the author does is he says we need to flip all the things or at least some of the things that we've learned about God. After reading the review of the book, I should say my review of the book, the author responded via email to me. Would you like to hear it? He's very gracious. He says, thanks for taking the time to read and review Flipped. I take it from your comments that you didn't really like it. (laughs) I can appreciate that. And if ever in the future you experience a flip, I hope you will remember this book. Close quote. That's not likely to happen. And so here is a, a person writing a so-called Christian book endorsing a panentheistic view that is nowhere found in Scripture. Number seven, I I hope this is where we all land, the seventh option concerning God, and that is the position known as theism. 
A God reveals himself in three persons who has revealed himself in nature and scripture and, as we will discover, in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with atheism, and I know some of you have friends and family members who are in an atheistic worldview or frame of mind, remember this. This is something I remember my grandfather used to say, a, a veteran of World War II. Many of you have heard this as well. There's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. There's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. In other words, the most diehard atheist can come to the point where it seems like his or her life is on the line. And and I've heard story after story after story. And what does that atheist do? God, help! Wait a minute. Ten seconds ago, you told me you were an atheist. There is no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. Would you open your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1. In verse 21, Paul helps us to understand why there is no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. He says in verse 21, For although they, mark this word, knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. One great theologian puts it this way. He says that the unbeliever, though having an imperfect knowledge, that is knowledge of God, yet has a valid and trustworthy knowledge of God. Sin is chargeable on the unbeliever because they have not lived up to the light of nature. The second thing I would have you see is that some people choose to suppress. They choose to suppress the knowledge of God. Go back in Romans 1 and look at verse 18. Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be market known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly Perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. John Calvin rightly said that the human mind is naturally endowed with the knowledge of God. This suppression is a willful, rebellious, disobedient suppression. Of God's existence. Many times I've shared the illustration, primarily because it works with teenagers and younger. You go swimming, everyone loves to take the beach ball into the swimming pool. Everyone that I know that I've ever gone swimming with loves to take the, the beach ball to the bottom of the pool, and something amazing always happens. Bloop. It always comes up. Think about that the next time you're swimming. And you you engage in that amazing activity of taking the beach ball to the bottom of the pool. It always comes up. And that's what happens in the mind of an atheist. I will suppress the knowledge of God. What fascinates me is most atheists suppress it through academia, 
through the writing of books, through philosophy, and some even try to do it via theology. They suppress the truth of God's existence, but it always, always, always surfaces whether you want it to or not. So I would ask you this morning, where do you stand on the basic and fundamental matter of God's existence? Scripture this morning offers some really, really encouraging advice for you. It says this, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. I want you to look at the second question with me, and that is, how can we know this God? We have affirmed his existence. By the way, I should add that the existence of God is never argued for formally in scripture have you figured that one out genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is not a formal argument for god's existence we read in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth how can we know this god one of the outstanding qualities of people in scripture we will find over and over again is their desire to know god I want to ask you that question this morning. Do you desire to know him? And if you desire to know him, how does that play itself out? The very fact that you're here with the body of Christ suggests to me that many of you, not all of you, but many of you, and even most of you, desire to know God. And so coming to church is a way to show an expression of you desire to know God. Reading the Word of God is an expression of, hey, I desire to know God. Being on your knees in prayer is an expression of your desire to know God. Look with me at Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33 And move your finger down with me to verse 13, if you would. Here is the story where Moses makes intercession for the people. He says in verse 13, Therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, he's speaking to God, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may what? That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Then go over to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And while you're turning to Philippians 3, what we're after here is, what exactly is this knowledge that, that Moses is referring to? What is this knowledge that we will see in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8? Read it with me. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Notice verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Here in Exodus chapter 33 and Philippians chapter 3, we have the words know, translated from the Hebrew for know and the Greek for know. And both of those words, both of those words you see, point to intimate 
personal knowledge. They point to intimate personal knowledge. Some of the young people remember the song. Remember the song that was popular years ago? I want to know you. Right? The song was not referring to 2 plus 2 equals 4. Right? It's, God, I want to know you intimately. And one of the ways we know God intimately is by learning and studying about his attributes. We learn about the attributes of God. Well, in Scripture, there are really two primary ways for us to know God. And the first, I'd have you turn to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm chapter 19. The first way that we know God is via general revelation. General revelation is a, is a term developed by theologians of the Christian faith that help us to see that nature is the first way that we recognize and know God. Look at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. How many of you, when you woke up this morning, saw this? Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. Anyone? One person. Beautiful. The heavens declare the glory of God. How do we know God? Through general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God, David says. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a talent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The first way that we know God is through general revelation. But there is a catch. There is a catch. General revelation will never, and I I say this dogmatically, will never lead a person to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, with Rich and Angela Strutz, who are the the new co-chairs of our missions ministry action team, and all the others that come alongside with Rich and Angela should remember this, that while general revelation is a beautiful thing, it, it points to the existence of God. Without sending missionaries, every single person would go to hell apart from hearing the gospel. You see, what some people do is they say, well, general revelation, the sky, the heavens and the the skies proclaim the glory of God. Why send missionaries? And Paul answers that question, does he not, in Romans chapter 10? How will they hear without a preacher? So general revelation will not lead people to a saving knowledge of Christ, but it does something very interesting. It makes them sufficiently accountable before God. Calvin put it this way, that every unconverted person needs the spectacles of faith. General revelation reveals the glory of God, but every person needs the spectacles of faith. And uh, the spectacles of faith come via special revelation. 
And there are two primary kinds of special revelation. The first is this. We can know the living God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We get to know him by becoming familiar with his attributes. God's attributes describe who he is. They are the the characteristics of his nature. The great Puritan Thomas Watson says it this way. God's glory lies chiefly in his attributes, which are several beams by which the divine nature shines forth. So we know God via general revelation. Nathan, let's look at number two. We, we know God via special revelation. And the first kind of special revelation is we know God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an additional kind of, an additional kind of special revelation, and we have been reading it together this morning. We know God through the special revelation of Scripture. It is through the scriptures that we are enabled to, to grasp this heavenly, beautiful portrait of God. And so remember this by way of practical application. Never make human experience, that is to say, never make how you feel to be the starting point in theology. Whenever the starting point in theology is how we feel, Books like this are produced. Whenever we go to the Word of God and ask God, God, who are you? I want to know you. That's when we get a clear portrait of God's existence. To begin with how I feel about God, to make my feelings the starting point is always a bad place to begin. Louis Burkhoff says it like this, to do so drags God to man's level. It stresses God's imminence at the expense of his transcendence. The final result is God made in the image of man. Now, I want to give you, and I say this with fear and trembling, a working definition of God. I've never been a big fan of of trying to define God. Because whenever you come to the place where you think you've defined him, you realize you never really understood him. Why? I am finite. God is infinite, right? I am a creature. God is the creator. But the Westminster divines put together a a very succinct little definition, and they knew it was not perfect. They knew it was not perfect, but here's what they said. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, And unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's a good start. Charles Hodge, the great Princetonian theologian before Princeton went the way of liberalism, put it this way. He described this statement from the Westminster Shorter Catechism as the best definition of God ever penned by man. Now, Hodge knew it was incomplete. He knew it was not perfect, but he said, wow, that is a a wonderful way to perceive God. 
Now, as we begin our series together and, and are committed to several weeks of learning about the attributes of God, I want to give you a, a, a summary, an overview of where we're going. This will not be a, a comprehensive summary, but I just want to whet your appetite just a touch for where we're going in the days ahead. I want you to see that we will unpack what it means for God to be spirit. John chapter 4, verse 24. You remember we studied that passage many months ago. Jesus said to the woman at the well, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. We will see that God is infinite. Job chapter eleven seven says, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? And we will see together that God is eternal. Psalm 92 says, Before the mountains were brought forth or ever formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We will learn that God is utterly unchangeable. That is to say, He is immutable. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We will learn about the omnipotence of God, the idea that God is all-powerful. I love Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, cries the Apostle John. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. We will learn that God is holy. We will learn together that God is the only attribute in all of Scripture that is carried to the third degree. Holy, holy, holy. Never do we learn about the mercy, mercy, mercy of God, or the love, love, love of God, or the wrath, wrath, wrath of God. But here we will learn the important reality that God is holy, holy, holy. We will learn together that God is just, that God is good, that God is true. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, Moses said, passed before him and proclaimed... The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I would ask this morning, how, how might you make a commitment to get to know this God better? If you're here this morning and you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're, you're an atheist, you're an agnostic, you're a deist, you're a, a pantheist, you're a panentheist. You say, I'm not any of those. I just, I just don't consent. I don't repent. I don't believe in Jesus. The biggest need for you today is to turn from your sin and to trust the Lord Jesus Christ who died on a wooden cross for the sins of everyone who would ever believe. For those of you who do believe, for those of you who, who believe in the existence of God and you, by His grace and by His Spirit and the power of the gospel, you get to know Him. Your responsibility, my responsibility is to spend time in His Word, to learn about His character, to begin to understand His attributes. And you will find that as you engage in that activity, you will find this supernatural delight to obey 
and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. What are some of the benefits of knowing the living God in a better way? Well, knowing God will help you understand his plans and his purposes better. Knowing God will equip you to serve him. Knowing God will help you through the difficult trials and the seasons of life. Knowing God will enable you to trust him. Knowing God will enable you to worship him in a way that glorifies him. Now, I promised a third question that we want to focus on in the remaining minutes, and that is, how now shall we think about this God? How can we avoid the drivel that is published and sent out around the world? How can we commit to a biblical view of God? I want to provide you with what turned out in my study to be the ABCs of theology. And these are ways that uh, really a mnemonic device that can help, help you in your study. That can help you to remember, I need to recall the ABCs of theology. The first A is this. The A is always distinguish between the creator and the creature. You see the quote that I read from a few moments ago by Doug Pageant. He essentially says this. He's denying the creator-creature distinction. And when we deny the creator-creature distinction, which every panentheist must by definition do, you run into deep waters. A.W. Tozer says it like this, To think of creature and creator alike in essential being is to rob God of most of his attributes and reduce him to the status of a creature. It is, for instance, to rob him of his infinitude. There cannot be two unlimited substances in the universe. There's one to talk about later this afternoon. There cannot be two infinite substances in the universe. It is to take away his sovereignty. There cannot be two absolutely free beings in the universe, for sooner or later, two completely free wills must collide. This is one I've received much feedback on over the last several years. The free will question. Well, A.W. Tozer, I should hasten to add, was not even a committed Calvinist. And he recognized there cannot be two absolutely free creatures in the universe. God is free or man is totally free. Take your pick. I I choose with the scriptures, God. God is free. So letter A, the ABCs of theology always distinguish between the creator and the creature. One of the great theologians... Cornelius Van Til, he popularized the the so-called biblical notion of the creator-creature distinction. He did it like this. I wish I had a whiteboard this morning. He would draw a large circle representing the creator. Who are we as the creature in this model? We're the little teeny circle underneath the big circle. The creator-creature distinction. Number two, or letter B in the ABCs. Banish banish idolatrous thoughts about God. That is, chuck them. That is, dump them. That is, flush them. 
You fill in the blank. Banish idolatrous thoughts of God. Hear the word of the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Tozer aptly says this, low views of God destroy the gospel for those who hold them. He goes on to say that the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. It begins in the mind and may be present where an overt act of worship has taken place. And Tozer concludes his argument, Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at the bottom libel. Lying about the character of God. It's libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is. In itself, Tozer adds, is a monstrous sin. And substitutes for the true God, one made after its own likeness. So we always banish, always distinguish rather between the creator and the creature. We banish idolatrous thoughts of God. Here's the C. We commit, we make a commitment to thinking biblically about God. I can already anticipate feedback, but it was so encouraging. But it made me think about God in different ways. It's garbage. We commit to thinking about God in a biblical fashion. Once again, Tozer says, I believe that the greatest issue facing the church in any century is a proper understanding of who God is. What is needed in the contemporary church today is a steady diet of the attributes and perfections of God. It is our high theology that produces high doxology. Until there is a right knowledge of God, there will never be a right knowledge of self, nor the proper remedy applied to our own inner lives. We must commit to thinking biblically about God because it affects everything I do in life. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so let me encourage you in closing to commit to the ABCs. How do we take now what we're learning about God and apply these things to our individual lives? J.I. Packer helps us here. He says, we turn each truth. And in the coming weeks, I told Chris Veldman, I wasn't going to do this. Sorry, Chris. In the coming 26 weeks, there I did it. In the next 26 weeks, by God's grace, as we learn about his attributes, Packer says this. We turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. You remember the words of Jesus? In John chapter 17, verse 3, as he prayed to the Father, 
He uttered the words, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And it's amazing to think this. This is why we were created. We were created to know the living God. This is why we didn't have to stay home at 10 o'clock so we could watch the Seahawks today. Because I love the Seahawks, but I love God more. So farewell to the Hawks. Anyone with me? We were created not to watch football, but to worship the living God. Jeremiah 9 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his wisdom. But let him who boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. Our mandate, my friends, is to worship God rightly. And if we ever hope to worship God rightly, we must be, as the reformers said time and time again, we must be semper reformanda. We must be always reforming. You say, what does it mean? It means we always go back to the word of God and our, our, our view of God is constantly reforming. If we don't understand His holiness, we learn more of His holiness. If we don't understand His grace, we learn more of His grace. If you're uncomfortable with His wrath, get comfortable with His wrath. Why? Because this is the God-centered view of God. My challenge to, to each of us is this, that we would strive each day to have a God-centered view of God. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Father, as we march forward in this study, I, I'm excited and I'm encouraged and I pray that you would encourage uh, the hearts and the minds of your people. May we embrace what the word of God proclaims about you. God, when we run into an attribute that we fail to understand or we encounter an attribute that we may even be uncomfortable with, I pray that you would help us to submit to Scripture, that we would embrace what the Scripture says about your character. May we be changed for the better. May our view of you influence everything in life. May our understanding of you enhance our lives as we become committed to this God-centered view of God. So we commit the series to you and ask that you would do great things in this place. In Jesus' worthy name we pray. Amen.